I'd like to begin by thanking Reverend Sanam and Samasimi for allowing me to speak with you again. And I'd like to start with a, a quote from Thich Nhat Hanh, seeing as this is the special time of year. He said that in the eyes of great compassion, there is no separation between subject and object no separate self, which is a lovely idea. And then he goes on <clears throat> and says something that's a, for some maybe a little bizarre or strange. If a cruel and violent person disembowels you, you can smile and look at him with love. It is his upbringing, his situation, and his ignorance that caused him to be and act so mindlessly. Um, I'm sure there aren't a lot of people in the general, general population that would respond so compassionately to being disemboweled. <laughs> um, but the, the idea is interesting. It means there's no fear. I mean, what, why doesn't this happen in our lives? Why isn't this the general thing in our society, in the world? Why, why are we so judgmental? Why are we so separate from each other? Why, why do we feel that our integrity is really important. I mean, it is, isn't it? And yet, and yet, our identification with what we are is, is crucial to this whole idea. I mean, how, how, do, you, how do you perceive what you are? We, we all have a sense of self. And we have, within that sense of self, a whole lot of things that we identify with. We have our relationships, we have our likes and dislikes, we have the things that we possess. And if we lose something, we can go through a grieving process. We feel really bad because we've, we've identified with it and now we've lost it. So part of our self, part of that sense of self is gone. We've lost it. And we have, in this sense of self, I think we've talked about it before, we, we, we have this idea of what we are in our minds and, and what the world is. And in our minds we've separated our sense of self from everything that isn't within that sense of self. So there's self and other in our minds. <coughs> Clearly that's not what Thich Nhat Hanh's talking about. <coughs> Excuse me. 
but that that idea of having or getting part of ourselves taken away is is a scary thing for a lot of people right um, we don't like to go through that grieving process we don't like to lose anything that we've taken into ourselves and and the ego in some traditions is considered bad uh, where they actually say kill the ego but if, if you really think about it ego is just what you've identified with it's it's that sense of self and it's it's the identification process actually and so it's really important and and then there are traditions that say desire is the source of suffering right? and, and it seems to me that that's a fairly limited perspective of desire because in, in the larger experience if we think about at least fulfilling desire we expand ourselves, we expand that sense of self right? we, we feel we want something and we acquire it and we add that to ourselves and so we grow by fulfilling desires and, and you know once we fulfill the desire like we, we saw a really nice down jacket that we liked and we got it and you know a few weeks later or next season we think oh I need another down jacket I like that one better or a car or a ring or whatever it is we have so we're, we're continually expanding and bringing things to ourselves and integrating them into that sense of self and there's, there's another concept of karma um, that I have sort of a, a different take on um, karma, like especially bad karma a lot of people talk about bad karma when something goes wrong or we have problems it's bad karma I think that karma is I think we're all destined to become fully enlightened to realize our full potential and the bad karma is our resistance to getting there we're being dragged kicking and screaming and that's all the bad karma <laughs> right. so there are a lot of different orientations ways of looking at what we are that is um, limiting if we think about losing things um, then we can suffer we can suffer mentally, physically uh, emotionally we have, we have uh, the idea of dukkha or suffering which is blamed on a whole lot of different things but suffering happens in our minds right? Um, I have a friend who is chronically tired because she's addicted to watching the news before she goes to bed and she knows that if she watches the news she'll be upset 
because there's virtually nothing <laughs> that isn't upsetting on the news these days. And so she can't sleep <laughs> because she's thinking about all these things. And she knows it, and yet she keeps doing it. And she gets, you know, maybe three hours of sleep a night if she's lucky. And, and her days are just misery because she's just dragging herself through this, this haze of fatigue. But that, that's, that's suffering. It's self-inflicted in her case, but it's suffering. Suffering happens in our minds. Um, it's, a, it's a structure in the mind. And if we see something, if we have an experience <coughs> that we don't like or that, that is terrifying to us or causes us pain, then we have that in our mind. And in, in, in a normal situation, you know, like, like if we're afraid of something, for instance, if you're walking down a, a lovely woodland trail and suddenly 25 yards ahead there's a big bull moose and he's lowering his antlers towards you and stamping his foot and, and snorting because you're in his territory. And the thought of, of you know, a ton of antler and muscle charging towards you at 55 kilometers an hour may arouse a little anxiety or something and you want to get out of the way or hide behind a tree or something like that. So, so generally in the real world, fear, fear is a good thing. Uh, fear is telling us there's a threat. But when fear happens in the mind, then how do we get away from it? I mean, it, it can be an image or a thought or an emotion that comes up in the mind. And how do we get away from it? The only way we can get away from it is by compartmentalizing our mind, dividing our mind. So the good me is here, and that bad thing is over there in that other part of my mind. Except I don't think of it that way. Right? I, don't, I don't perceive it that way. And yet, we have this compartmentalized mind that every time we do it, limits us and restricts us more and more and more to a smaller and smaller, smaller part of our mind. Does that make sense? I mean, to do that, does that make sense? <laughs> it's, it's something that everybody does. Right? We dissociate ourselves from the things that we're afraid of, using them as the reason for splitting ourselves up into the bits. And that, that goes on and on through our lives. So we're doing two things. We're accumulating all kinds of information about the world. But we're, we're sorting it according to self and other. Whereas Thich Nhat Hanh was saying that there is no separation. The reality is that we, we are one with everything. But in the mind, we don't live that. We, we have this experience that we don't want to think about certain things. Right? We don't want to feel certain things, certain emotions. Right? Um, you know, the, the 
the lady going to, to bed thinking about what's happening in the world right? and, and spending most of the night thinking about those things. And, and meditation, well, let me rewind a bit before I get there. But we go to school and we focus on the different things we study. And that focusing of attention causes us to grow in certain ways. So we learn <coughs> economics, or we learn physics, or we learn you know, what Marco Polo did, or whatever it is, but that allows us to grow. We, we accumulate that kind of information by focusing on it. And then we go out into the world and we get a job, and we've never, maybe we've never done that thing before. But because we want that job, there's an intense focus on what we're supposed to be doing. And we learn how to do it. And we grow from doing that. And our whole culture, our whole culture, has this focusing on the external. And that's, that's part of life. The external definitely is part of life. And, and we know that that sense of self and other is really important, right? If, if I fall down and really whack my knee hard, then I need to know that there's a problem, you know? And I, I, I know if I get a sliver in my finger, that it's not part of me, or it shouldn't be. It's trying to be, but it's not, right? So I'll remove the sliver. Um, that, that is an understanding of how we are in the world, and it's important. But that's the surface. Most of what we learn is about the surface of the world. And what we're doing here in meditation is we're exploring the depth. So what are we? That whole idea of what we are is within that depth. Okay. In, in the Vedas, that source is called Sat Chidananda. Sat is pure existence, Chit is mind, discernment, and Ananda is bliss or totally unconditional love. And at the source, in, in the nature of what we are, Buddha nature, it's one. But it manifests in those three directions. And obviously at the surface, they're quite different. We experience them quite differently. We have our emotions, and they're very different than what we actually think about and, and you know, have cognitive interactions with. And the physical is, is obviously different again, although they seem to be all connected somehow. So when we meditate, what we're doing is we're focusing on the internal. Right? We let the thoughts come and go, whatever they do, they come and go. And we're watching. And we're following our breath, or we're doing a wadu, an idea um, and focusing on that, but we let everything else just happen the way it needs to, the way the mind or the body wants to. We feel 
a strange sensation here, a twitch there, and we just watch and notice. Right? Some people feel tired because they, did, they watched the news and didn't get a good night's sleep, and they come here and they go cluck and they're sleeping during the meditation. And, and that's what the body needs, and that's fine. But, but really, the focus is on who we really are, the source, Buddha nature. And ultimately, that's what we're cultivating every time we meditate, whether we're sitting in the group, right, in silence here at the temple, or whether we're doing it in our own homes, or out in the park somewhere, or maybe not today, but sometimes. But that, that's the development of who we are. And if we, if we can enliven that, perhaps that, that fear of others can be neutralized. Perhaps we can be in a world that Thich Nhat Hanh is describing. You know, in the, in the Christian tradition, when Jesus was on the cross, he asked that the people who were doing this to him would be, could be forgiven. Right? I don't imagine that was a pleasant experience, being nailed to a board. Right? And yet he was able to be concerned about the others that were there. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh spent a lot of time in Vietnam during the war, in his early life, during the Vietnamese War. And then he went to the United States and was never allowed back into Vietnam, or at least until the war was ended. But, but he experienced all kinds of things that were really nasty. And yet, he was, he was an amazing person. Um, uh, Martin Luther King met him and said that he was the most Christian person he'd ever met right? because he manifested that, that being the source of what he is, what we all are. But he was, he was manifesting it fully. And so to me, for me, that's why we're here. So we can, we can live with each other in harmony, without the judgments, without, without the opinions, without the fears. essence of what Thich Nhat Hanh was saying. Um, in the eyes of great compassion, there's no separation between subject and object. I'm getting there. It's just okay. So, um, From, from Sangha's email, the Temple Begging Bowl, she quoted the, the Malakirti, 
Sutra. A bodhisattva generates the love that is truly a refuge for all living beings. The love that is peaceful because it is free of grasping. The love that is not feverish because it's free of passions. The love that accords with reality because it is equanimous in all three times. I presume that's past, present, future. The love that is without conflict because it is free of violence of the passions. The love that is non-dual because it is involved neither with the external nor with the internal. The love that is imperturbable because it is totally ultimate. And if, if you hadn't, haven't read Sana's email, um, I, I recommend it because it's very inspiring. So, thank you. <laughs>